Good morning, Grace. Wow, this feels a lot different standing here than back there. My wife, Andy, and I started coming here, as Chet mentioned, two years ago. And we had been invited several times by our friend Sharon Noonan. One Sunday, we finally showed up, and we've been coming ever since. We fell in love with this church, with the preaching, with the music, with the people. We were blessed to get plugged into uh, Gary and Elaine Barron's Sunday school class, which is amazing. If you don't have a Sunday school class, that is a great class. And it is full of great people. Um, Then we were blessed to get plugged into the praise team, another great group of people. But I think what we love most about this church is the spirit. When you walk through the doors of grace, you feel a presence of God. You feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place, right? I mean, you can, you can see it on the faces of the people and the laughter and the conversations that take place. There's something special about a church that is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that this church is one of those churches. So I just want to say that I feel very humbled, very grateful to God and to Pastor Benji for giving me the opportunity to share with you this morning. And that being said, if you don't like the sermon today, well... We know who to blame, right? Please pray with me. Dear God, Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful for the privilege of coming into your presence this morning to worship you and to praise you, Father. Father, I pray that what we have done up to this point has pleased you. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit come into us. I pray that you fill us, Lord. Help us, Father, to open our hearts and our minds to that one word, that one sentence, that one lesson that you want each of us individually to hear this morning. And as we leave this place this morning, Father, I pray that we take that lesson with us, determined to apply it to our lives. Father, to your honor and to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me get it. I didn't think my mouth was going to get so dry. Okay, so this morning we're going to talk a little bit about priorities. And I want to ask you to kind of take a trip back in time with me for a moment to February 11th, 1964. A day that saw 17,000 young people gathered together in a moment that many would say would change the face of American culture forever. 17,000 frantic, screaming young people standing toe-to-toe and face-to-face with lines and lines of law enforcement personnel. Police officers armed with high-pressure water cannons, hoping desperately to control 
the crowds, the madness, the insanity. In fact, because of what happened on this day, the safety of our police officers became a major topic of concern throughout this country. The screaming crowds, the police presence, the drama, the madness, the insanity, all caused by four men. And I'm not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm talking about the Beatles. John, Paul, George, and Ringo. This was the beginning of the British invasion. This was their first concert in the United States. It was in Washington, D.C. One journalist described it this way. The chaos, or one might say panic, that occurred at this concert was unbelievable unless you were there. The deafening shriek of 17,000 young, healthy lungs made even the roar of a passing jet plane inaudible. Paul McCartney would later say, the screaming was so loud that they couldn't hear their voices or their instruments over the noise of the crowds. And they had to play the entire concert on memory alone. One young Beatles fan said this, I love them, I love them, I love them, and I don't care what anybody says, I will always love them. Even when I'm old and 105 and a great-great-grandmother, I will still love them. Beatlemania. Some of us might remember that. Now let's fast forward to 1996. And a similar movement begins to take shape in young families across America and Canada. A whole hundreds of young parents begin to act out this kind of bizarre ritual, kind of a cross between Beatlemania and the Hunger Games, all to provide their child with an eternal source of joy and happiness. And it came in the shape of Tickle Me Elmo. Anybody remember this? One uh, Walmart employee told it this way. I was just standing there trying to control the crowds when someone yelled, there's the Elmos, and they trampled us. This poor Walmart employee suffered a pulled hamstring, injuries to his back, his jaw, his knee, and a concussion. I hope he got a raise, right? Now, let's ask ourselves a question. Were people all over the world drawn to the Beatles because their music was so great? Or was there something else going on? I mean, I know the Beatles' lyrics were so powerful, so meaningful, so deep. Words like, help, I need somebody. Words like, I'm a loser. Or what about obladi oblada? I mean, what does that even mean, right? Maybe the reason for their popularity went a little bit deeper. And what about those young parents that had to have that Tickle Me Elmo 
doll so desperately, so badly that they were willing to risk life and limb in order to get it. Or at least the life and limb of that poor Walmart guy, right? What were these people looking for? And what did they think would happen when they got it? Why are we here this morning? What is it that motivated us to get up, get dressed, get in our car, and drive here to church? There wasn't anybody famous that was going to be here. Not even Pastor Benji's here this morning. There was no mob outside that we had to fight to get in. No police presence. So why? Why are we here? Because... As people, as human beings, we want, we desire, we seek, we pursue those things that we believe will make our lives a little bit better, a little bit more meaningful. The problem is that most of the things we pursue don't live up to the hype. They don't deliver on the promises. On July 4th, 1776, congressional representatives from the 13 colonies came together and they adopted a document called the Declaration of Independence. And within that document, there's a phrase that I'm sure we are all very familiar with. It says that every human being has the right to life, liberty, and what? Pursuit of happiness. And that that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, is very interesting because of that word happiness. The concept of happiness can and probably does mean something different to each and every one of us. For instance, say you're a nature lover. Your happiness might be walking down a forest trail beside a, a beautiful stream and a waterfall surrounded by beautiful trees and foliage and, and, and wildlife. Somebody else's happiness might be strapping a parachute on their back and jumping out of a plane at 15,000 feet. My wife loves cats. Her happiness, if you were to put her in a room with a dozen kittens, that would be her happy place. Loving on them, kissing their furry little faces off. My son Dave is an avid fly fisherman. His happiness would be standing in a cool mountain stream trying to catch that elusive brown trout. My daughter Rihanna loves to cook. Her happiness would be creating a gourmet meal. My son-in-law Nolan loves to eat. His happiness would probably be consuming that gourmet meal. Our founding fathers believed that everyone had the right to pursue whatever it is that would make them happy, as long as it is within the law and as long as it doesn't harm someone else. And today, 250 years later, we still seek we still search for those things that we believe will make us happy. But it seems like today we have so many more options than ever before. 
every day we are flooded by voices trying to convince us that our happiness is dependent on us using their product. Wash your plates with our dish soap and you'll be happy. Buy our shampoo and you'll be happier. Buy one of our cars and you'll be the happiest ever. Buy our insurance and all your problems will be solved. Drink our soda because after all, things go better with Coke, right? Visit our resort because after all, it is the happiest place on earth, right? Today we have computers and smartphones that will take us almost anywhere we want to go instantly. And some of those places are good. And some of them are not good at all. If happiness to us is a destination and we can afford it, we could travel almost anywhere in the world that we want to go. Asia, Europe, Africa, the Holy Land, Israel, Lompoc. We literally have access to just about anything that our minds can conjure up. Anything we want to pursue. But are these things blessings or distractions? What's interesting and kind of sad, really, when you think about it, is that when we seek that thing that we believe will make us happy and we find it and we experience it, it isn't long before we realize that that happiness is very short, very fleeting. It doesn't last. It's temporary. Eventually, we come to the end of the hiking trail and there's a parking lot. Eventually, the parachute brings us back to earth, literally and figuratively. The fish gets caught, the gourmet meal gets consumed, and we find ourselves right back where we started, in search mode, looking for that next happy experience, that next happy place, chasing after things that don't really satisfy, that don't really Bless us. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Here Jesus is giving us the formula for finding that joy, that happiness that is lasting, that is not temporary. And these words ring true for all of us, from the homeless person struggling on the streets just to survive, to the billionaire who could afford to buy everything and anything his heart desires. They speak to us because we all seek, we all search, we all pursue something. We all wake up every morning with a goal, with a priority. And that's a good thing. Because God created us that way. We were created to be productive. We were created to seek and to teach and to learn and to, and to search for things. 
We were not created to be couch potatoes, to sit in front of a television all day, or to play video games all day long. We were created by God to be productive. In the middle 18th century, a British evangelist named Campbell Morgan said this, No life is complete that does not feel upon it some great compulsion, something driving it. We want to learn to be loving and patient with all sorts of people, but it is difficult to have patience with or admiration for some men. Their eye never gleams. They have no passion, no power. They drift. A man that is a real man has something that drives him, something that creates enthusiasm. I would add to that something that creates passion. You know, we are given one life here on earth, one go around, one chance to get it right. And so many of us waste so much precious time seeking the wrong things, searching for happiness in places that we will never find it going down roads, spending our time and our efforts traveling down roads that will eventually lead us to a dead end. So often we settle for so much less than what God wants for us. I wish I had the years back that I wasted searching for things that had no eternal value, no lasting meaning. When all the time Jesus had already given me the directions, he had already given me the formula for finding that joy, that real peace and contentment. Jesus is telling us here that the level of happiness that we achieve in life, the measure of peace and joy and contentment that we reach in life is directly related to what we seek. So what is it that you seek? What is it that you pursue? What is it that gives your life purpose and meaning? Maybe there's someone here right now saying to themselves, well, I'm not sure what gives my life purpose and meaning. Maybe my life doesn't have any purpose or meaning. Well, that's not true because everything that God has created has a purpose. Everything. The sky, the oceans, the life under the oceans, rocks, plants, trees, people, insects. Although I haven't, ex I haven't uh, figured out the reason for cockroaches yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to take that one to the Lord someday. But everything that God has created has a purpose. I mean, there's nothing wrong with jumping out of a plane or catching a fish or hiking down a trail or cooking a gourmet meal. But Jesus is telling us here that our first priority, our first goal has got to be seeking and finding God. And when we do that, when we seek Him and we find Him, then we find that source of of joy and peace and contentment that is lasting, that is not temporary. We find that peace that the Apostle Paul talks about that surpasses all understanding.
So how do we seek God? We're going to look at three things briefly this morning that can help us, that can motivate us to seek God. And the first is this book. If our desire, if our goal, our aim is to seek God and to find God and to know God, the best place to start is by reading the instruction manual, God's Word. First Peter 1.3 tells us that His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. God has given us everything that we need to seek Him and to find Him and to know Him. The Bible, 66 books, written over a period of about 1,400 years by some 40 different authors spanning about 4,000 years of human history. In fact, the Bible is the greatest history book ever written. All other history books only record the past. But God's book, God's history book, His story records everything from the beginning in the book of Genesis to the end, the book of Revelation, where God promises He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. No other history book ever written records future events because that knowledge is God's and God's alone. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the almighty God, the heavenly Father, everlasting Lord, the great I am. No other book in history has been read more or quoted more than the Bible. No other book in history has, has been the source of so much anger and hatred and at the same time so much love and compassion. No other book in history has been so scrutinized and challenged as the Bible and no other book in history has stood up to every one of those challenges with authenticity and authority and truth. No other book in history has the words of life, has the power to heal broken hearts, and the power to change lives. To the atheist, the Bible is a source of confusion and condemnation, but those of us who, are, who believe it is the message of the salvation of God. There's an amen there somewhere. I'll give that an amen myself. Thank you, Jesus, for that. You want to seek something meaningful, something powerful, something life-changing? Then get this book and study it, scrutinize it, challenge it. Someone said to read the Bible, we should read the Bible as if we're trying to prove it wrong, which is exactly what I did when I came back from Vietnam. Maybe there's somebody here right now who's saying, well, you know, I don't really like to study. I didn't like it in school, and I definitely don't like it now. I, I really don't like to read. It makes me fall asleep. 
I'm really not into all of that work. Well, you know, that excuse might have flown 100 years ago, maybe even 20 or 30 years ago, but not today. To not today because we have so many resources for the God's Word. For the cost of going out to McDonald's for, for lunch, you could buy an electronic Bible that'll read Scripture to you, even let you choose the, the chapter and the verse that you want read. We have Bibles that will read in any language that you want, over 1,500 languages. You want the Bible read to you by a group of movie stars? You've got it. You want the Bible read to you by someone with a British accent? You've got it. You want the Bible read to you by, by a Shakespearean actor? You've got it. And here's something interesting. How many Star Wars, fan, Star Wars fans do we have in the congregation? Yeah, a few. You could go on eBay this afternoon, and for about $15, you can purchase the Bible read by James Earl Jones. I mean, imagine that, right? Sitting with your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren and listening to the Holy Scriptures being read by Darth Vader himself. I mean, that could be the catalyst that will drive them to seek God more. Today we have access to the Word of God on our TVs, on our computers, on our cell phones, on our radios, on our iPads. Today there is no excuse for spiritual ignorance, none, except maybe disinterest, unbelief, or maybe just plain laziness. And I wonder how powerful that argument's going to be when we're standing before the Lord trying to explain to Him why we didn't seek Him more. The goal of seeking God is to find God, and the Word of God is the best place to start. Now, second, another motivator for us to seek God and to find God is understanding who we are. Understanding what we need. In Matthew 5.3, Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poverty, the poorness that Jesus is talking about here has nothing to do with money. It doesn't have anything to do with finances. He's talking about spiritual poverty. A poverty uh, that, that tells us, uh, that informs us of our lost condition before God. It's the knowledge of our need for God. Because until we can admit that we need Him, we will never, ever seek Him. In our world today, we have so many distractions, so many things that compete for our time and our attention. We're told that our happiness depends on the kind of car we drive or the kind of house we live in or the kind of clothes we wear. And some of us buy into these false teachings and we start to pursue happiness following and seeking after those things. We will never find happiness in those things. 
They will never make us truly happy. In fact, in our quest to find happiness through stuff and things, we actually move farther and farther away from God rather than closer to Him. Those things will never fill that God-shaped hole that we all have in our hearts. That deep need inside of us that only a relationship with God can satisfy. The fact is that all of us woke up this morning and came to church. We made God our first priority. And that's a good thing. That's what God wants us to do. We came here to, to worship Him and to praise Him and to connect with Him and get to maybe hope, hopefully to come to know Him a little bit deeper. And today, after we leave, we'll go out to the parking lot and we'll probably be feeling pretty good about the way we spent our morning. Maybe feel good about our relationship with the Lord. Maybe even feel some of that peace that the Apostle Paul talks about. Then we get in our car and we drive away and we go about our day. And it won't be long before we start hearing those voices again. And some of us will start listening to those voices again. Come on, you don't need to take this stuff so seriously. You have so many other things to occupy your time. Come on, you, you don't need to see God so desperately. You can seek Him next week when you come to church again. And then some, somewhere around the middle of the week, we start feeling a little anxious, maybe even a little depressed. And we find ourselves wondering why we treated our children so poorly the night before. Why we treated our spouse so badly that morning. Then we get in our car and we drive to work. And we hit the traffic. And we start feeling a little tense. And we look in our rearview mirror and we see a car swerving in and out of traffic, trying to go 50 miles an hour faster than everybody else. And sure enough, he pulls right up alongside of us. And you're thinking to yourself, there's no way he can fit in. And there he goes. And you slam on your brakes, barely missing him. And you're like, and your first reaction, your first inclination is to step on the gas, find that guy, pull up right next to him, roll your window down, and let him have it, right? Then we get to work. And it isn't long before we want to stuff our, our, our fellow employee, our coworker, into the nearest dumpster. And we find ourselves wondering, where's that peace and that joy that I felt the other day? Where was that? Oh, yeah, at church. But this time, instead of letting the, the anxiety and the tension control us, we remember the formula. Now, what was that Jesus said? Uh, oh, yeah, seek God first. You might be saying to yourself, I've tried seeking God. You know, it's hard for me. There's so many other things I need to do. 
Sometimes I just don't have the desire to seek God. Sometimes I don't really have the interest to seek God. Sometimes I just don't feel like seeking God. I guess there's something wrong with me. I guess I'm a bad person. I guess I'm just weak. You know what? Join the club. Newsflash, none of us is strong enough to seek God. None of us is, has the interest to seek God. None of us is capable of finding God, let alone seeking Him. We are all on that same sinking ship, that spiritual titanic, and it's going down. In fact, Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, not one. And as hopeless as this might sound, when we realize the truth of this verse, when we grasp the depth of these words, that's when we start taking our first step towards truly knowing and understanding who God is. When we are pursuing that thing that we believe will make us happy, we come to the realization that you can't catch that fish without bait. You can't pet that kitten without hands. You can't cook that gourmet meal without ingredients. You can't jump out of a plane without a parachute. And you cannot seek and find God without the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for that knowledge. It's the Holy Spirit living within us that motivates us to pursue Him, to seek Him. The power to live a godly life has nothing to do with what's in here. It doesn't come from our own power, any kind of source within us. It comes from God's Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God that makes all the difference. I mean, look at the Apostle Peter standing on the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming Jesus Christ as the risen Messiah to the very people who crucified him. And this was just weeks after he denied that he even knew Christ. Not once, but three times. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. Or what about the Apostle Paul? A hater of Christians. He was doing everything in his power to shut them up, to destroy them, to imprison them. Even held the robes of the men, of the men who stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And the same one who authored almost half of the New Testament. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. And what about that other guy? What's his name? David Gutierrez. As a child was consumed with anger and doubt and fear and insecurities. Graduated from high school an angry and bitter teenager. Dropped out of college got drafted and sent to Vietnam, came back from Vietnam an angry and bitter adult, an angry and bitter young man, withdrawn, antisocial, self-centered, self-destructive, 
suspicious of everyone and everything. Didn't want to have anything to do with God or Christ or Christians. In fact, at one point thought all Christians were idiots. And the same one who's standing before you this morning trying to encourage you to seek God more. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. Maybe your story is similar to mine. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was 27 years old, but it wasn't until I understood the role of the Holy Spirit in my life that things started to change for me. Realizing that God never expected me to live the Christian life on my own, in my own power. God never expected me to be perfect. Understanding that it's His Spirit living within us that empowers us to pursue Him. Motivates us to seek Him. And God, knowing our lost condition has provided everything we need to enter into a personal and meaningful and intimate relationship with Him. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Praise God for providing us a way to be made right with Him, to, a way that we can experience all that He has for us. Jesus said, seek first Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So when we do that and we seek him and we find him and we know him, then God's going to give us the desires of our heart, right? Money, power, fame, yay. Philippians 4.19, the Apostle Paul said, The same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. It says all of our needs, not all of our wants, not all of our desires. Thank you, Father, for not giving us what we want. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us what we need. But you know what the interesting thing is? That the closer we get to God, the more intimate we become with Him, the more we come to know Him, we find that our priorities begin to change. We start to see things through the eyes of Christ. And we start to value what He values. And to honor the things that He honors. And that's when we get it. That's when we realize that God truly has given us and does give us the desires of our heart because we desire for Him to be in control. We desire for Him to lead us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I want to close by just reading the first verse and chorus of one of my favorite old hymns. It says this, <clears throat> My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand.
All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So be careful. Because what you seek, you will find. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much, Father, for your word, your book of directions for us, Lord. Father, I pray that when we leave here today, we take that one lesson, that one word, that one sentence that you wanted us to hear and apply it to our lives. So it will draw us even closer to you, Lord. Father, we are so grateful for the life that you have given us. Help us to make the most of our time and our efforts, Lord. And again, Father, in all things, we pray for your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.